Our reading this morning is taken from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Uche, for reading that powerfully and dramatically. <laughs> I don't think I'll be echoing that in this sermon, <laughs> much to your disappointment, I'm sure. Well, if you've got a Bible, please do turn to the passage that was read to us from Jonah chapter 3. The playwright Alan Bennett wrote, sometimes there is no next time, no timeouts, and no second chances. No second chances. And that may be true for many folk in many situations. But while we have breath, there is always a second chance with God. You're hard-pressed to find any leading biblical character who didn't need a second chance and who didn't receive a second chance from the Lord. Churches have all sorts of funny names. One of my favorite is St. Swithin's next to the gasworks. Um, there's St. Aldate's, who was an imaginary Saxon saint. The one that always makes me smile is St. Botolph's. But I think a good name for a church would be Second Chance Saloon. Because that's what we're all about here. And church is a place where God meets with us to give us a second chance in life. And the church is a people who've received, experienced, and are celebrating the second chance that God gives them. So many prominent words in the Bible underline this. 
words like repent, return, renewal, regeneration, rebirth, redeem, reconcile. The prefix re, that is an ancient root and it just means again or back or renew. It's about the second chance. We're a second chance people. And those being baptized throughout our services today, aura this morning, who was surrounded by a divine aura, has taken hold of the second chance that God has offered her. Our reading is about the second chance. Jonah has a second chance. Nineveh has a second chance. We've got a second chance. And if you're in church today or if you're joining with us online, you need to know that God today offers you a second chance with him. And now, no matter who you are and where you've been and what you've done and how much you think you may have blown it, he is always the God of the second chance <laughs> and the third and the fourth and the fifth all the way up until the point where we meet him when we die. God had called Jonah to go and declare his judgment on the wicked city of Nineveh. And Jonah understandably was appalled and terrified because of Nineveh's reputation. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, now the city of Mosul in Iraq. And it was a dominant empire for 300 years in the ancient Near East. They were a martial a warring people, and they conquered through might and power, but also through intimidation. They were known for their brutality and the torture of those that they conquered. If you go to the British Museum today, you can see giant friezes that depict from that time, Assyrian friezes depicting the torture of their conquered enemies. And one art critic described it like this. He said, Assyrian art contains some of the most appalling images that have ever been created. So this is a cruel, a vile people. And when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go and, sh and, and tell him to repent, Jonah thinks, yeah, right not, and flees in the opposite direction. He fears them more than he fears God. And we can understand that. And he disobeys God's call, and he gets on a ship going in diametrically the opposite position or direction. And God sends a storm, and he's thrown in the sea, and he's drowning, and then God sends a large fish, and he calls out to God in the belly of the fish, and he's brought to a shore and vomited up. And there he is, yellow, uh, no doubt having been pickled in the fish bile. And he's endured the terror at sea and the drowning in the deeps and being brined. Sometimes obeying God is the better, safer option. <laughs> and then we come to our passage. Verse one says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And we see this prophet's warning. God hasn't given up on Jonah and God hasn't given up on Nineveh. And God is still wanting to get his word to them. He hasn't rejected Jonah and discarded him and gonna find someone else. 
He's got a purpose for Jonah, a plan for him. And he shows him grace before Jonah goes and offers grace to this city. Jonah's given a second chance. And this time Jonah seizes it. I did my research years ago on a theologian called Karl Barth, great scholar. And he once received a, a letter from an uppity student who was, was uh, boasting away and, and um, you know, saying this and that. And Bart replied to him. The student was really lost. As Bart wrote, you've got to begin again at the beginning. Begin again at the beginning. And this consists of the fear of the Lord. If you're given a second chance, best not to need a third. And the word of the Lord came to him. We don't know how. Maybe a voice, maybe a vision, maybe a dream, maybe an impression. But God spoke. And here's the thing. God is not silent. God is not distant. God is not absent. God is always wanting to make a way for us to come close to him. And his word is what goes out of him and is in between him and us to bring us to one another. His word unites. He's a speaking God. He's continuously articulate. He speaks through nature generally. He speaks at times through culture. He speaks normatively through the Bible, scripture. He speaks by gifts. He speaks by dreams. He speaks through pictures and impressions. And preeminently, he speaks through Jesus Christ. God is not mute. He is a speaking God. And he speaks, and through that word, wants us to return to him, be reconciled to him, come close to him. Yesterday at the coronation, King Charles was handed several treasures, but the first gift that he received was, in my view, the most important gift, and it was a Bible. Some of you will have watched that, a Bible that was specially commissioned um, uh, and made by Oxford University Press. I've actually got, it looked like this, only larger. This is a facsimile of the one from 1953 that was given to the queen when she was crowned at her coronation, Queen Elizabeth. And then, as yesterday, the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland handed this book, handed this Bible to the monarch and said these words, Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and gospel of God as the rule of the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing that the world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. The greatest the most important gift given to the king yesterday was the word of God. And we're treated like royalty. We're given that dignity. We're given that honor because God wants to give this book to us. And we have access to him and his word to direct our lives. Let's be people of the book. We gotta pray that King Charles, bearing the weight of his office, will lean on God's word, just as his 
wonderful mother did. But we've got the same word. We've got the same access. And let's avail ourselves of it. You know, years ago, a former rector of this church, Dr. Michael Green, he was invited to a meal with the royal family. And in between courses, the queen said, Dr. Green, tell us something from the Bible. And she leant on that word. We've got to pray our new king will lean on that word. And let us be a people who lean on that word. God's word went out through Jonah. God's word is still going out. It's a word that goes out through this book. And it's a word to you and me in which he wants to draw us closer. Verse 2, the word tells us, Scripture tells us that the word specifically for Nineveh was this, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you 40 more days and the city will be destroyed. The word tells us that God is not ignorant and God is not indifferent to our lives and how we're living them and the wrong that is in them and the suffering that we may cause. God sees and he cares and he judges and he speaks and he acts. He's a God who is involved. He's not the local and parochial God of the sons of Abraham only in the Middle East. He's the God of the world and his eyes roam to and fro. And he sees what's going on in the corridors of the Kremlin or the battlefields of Bakhmut. He sees what's going on in the royal palaces in Great Britain. He sees what's going on in number 10. He sees what's going on in the Oval Office. He sees what's going on behind your front door. He sees what's going on behind your eyes. He sees what's going on in your heart. And he's a God who cares. And he takes an interest and he wants to be involved. And he's spoken a word for us. Not ignorant and he's not impotent. The God who sees what's going on in Nineveh is the God who calls it to account. And God warns Nineveh that in 40 days she will be overthrown. And this is actually the largest city in the world at the time. And archaeologists tell us that there was 90 kilometers of walls. Not just a walled city around it, but everywhere within there were these walls that were there for protection. No enemy could overthrow it. It was impregnable militarily, but not so to God. What I love about this is that God's word is not a fait accompli. You've got 40 days or you will be destroyed. And how they respond to the word determines how the word will work itself out. The word is an indictment against the Ninevites, but it's also an invitation for them to change, to turn around, to turn from their wrongdoing, and to turn and receive God. And I love the fact they've got 40 days 40 days to respond, 40 days to repent. And this is a repeated motif that we find in the book of Jonah, that there's always grace. There's grace before judgment. 
There's grace. God is always looking to find a way to bring us back, to get us back to himself. If we continue without him, we will find ourselves dissolving. But he's always working and waiting and wanting for 40 days for them to come back. So that's the first thing I wanted to highlight, the prophet's warning. Then secondly, we see the city in mourning. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. And a fast was proclaimed, and all from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. I'm not going to sit down at that point. And he proclaimed a fast for all animals and for all people. He says, let us call urgently on God and let us give up our evil ways and our violence. The Ninevites heard the word and immediately they received it. It was like rain falling on a dry ground. Suddenly their mind was open and their ears were open, their heart was open and they saw themselves. They saw their emptiness, they saw their sinfulness, they saw their need for God and immediately they called out to him. We heard an amazing testimony this morning from Aura saying it was like treasures. This word that wasn't a threat, it was a warning, was also an invitation, but it was treasure. And they wanted it. And so they repent in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is an old coarse cloth of goat hair, sometimes of hemp, covering their heads in ashes, a sign of mourning. It's what you did at funerals. They humbled themselves. Stephen, in our prayers a few moments ago, prayed, God lead the dentists in their surgery. Did you hear that prayer? Any dentists in the room? I said amen at that point. Um, recently, I had a terrible toothache. And uh, I tried everything, ibuprofen and, you know, paracetamol. That didn't work. I went to the codeine. That didn't work. I went, you know, salt water. That didn't work. I was swilling whiskey and then drinking it. That didn't work. And my face just, like, got bigger and bigger and bigger. I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble rang up the dentist Lord lead the dentists in their surgery they said you can come in a month I said that isn't going to work I'm in real trouble and anyway finally they, I was going to send them a picture of this swollen face they said come on in and I went in and um, they said oh yeah you've got an abscess all the way down your jaw and they drilled in and Mount Vesuvius erupted and <laughs> yeah I know I know I'm so, hold on to your hats and it was just <laughs> I mean, that you, it was pain, but the pain was relieved as the hole was opened up and the poison and that, the pressure could be released. And the Word of God does that. It doesn't do it to point out our trouble. It does it to heal it. The Word of God goes deep. It drills into our heart and our mind and our soul and our past and our history. And it wants to bring God's goodness into it and get rid of all that has gone wrong there. God lead the dentists in the surgery, I say. And amazingly, they then did a root canal 
and he didn't even charge me. God lead the dentists <laughs> in the surgery. <laughs> I know. Some people have heard thousands of sermons and sadly remain unmoved and unchanged. Yet these cruel Ninevites hear the word, one word, and they've got a soft heart and they receive God's word. They didn't delay. They didn't need 40 days to think about God's offer, to weigh it all up, to decide on the best pragmatic response, to see if they could negotiate terms with God. But immediately they took hold of the grace that was offered to them. And then they could party for the next 39. You know, we're seeing people coming to faith in Jesus in this church in a way I've never seen before. They're just coming to, and, and they're seeing the treasure. And they're saying yes. They're not having to do two years of inquiry courses. They've, they are brought here by the Lord. The word comes to them. They see. They say yes. We're baptizing people today who, got, who didn't know anything about God just a month or two ago. I recall a distinguished gentleman who joined our church many years ago. And he'd been a former senior ambassador, very distinguished career, and he was in retirement and he was here for a year at All Souls as a fellow to write up his memoirs. And he told me that as an undergraduate in 1957, he heard the famous preacher John Stott who did a week of preaching on the theme, what do you think of Jesus? And he said he went for breakfast with him in the morning after hearing him speak. And John Stott confronted him with this. What do you think of Jesus? And how are you going to respond to Jesus? And he decided he would put the question to one side. The next day, he, uh, he, he, he didn't go back to the um, mission. He went into the civil service. He had a remarkable and distinguished career, was knighted and all of that. And then 45 years later, he, comes, he retires and he came back to Oxford, the place where he had decided to put Jesus to one side. And all those 45 years, despite building a great career and being very successful, he knew something was missing. And God allowed him 45 years. And he came back, he came to Alpha to explore the Christian faith and he joined the church and he became a Christian. How sad though that he waited 45 years. All those 45 years he could have been enjoying a relationship with the Lord. We're told from the greatest to the least, they humbled themselves no one can sit aloof to God's word. It's the same for all, high-born or low, rich or poor, old or young. God's word, God's way is the same. And again, I thank God that in our church we've got professors and ex-prisoners and hedge fund managers and homemakers uh, across the professional and across the social differences and yet all united, all the same, all, as it were, receiving Jesus. When the king heard, he called a fast. And I find this interesting. The fast was not just for himself, 
but for all the people and all the animals. He was, he was making himself low, level with the animals. And as we saw dramatized, the king stepped off his throne and sat on the floor and took off his royal robes. And millions yesterday watched the coronation of King Charles and we had a visual cornucopia with the greatest display of pageantry and glory and frippery and human uh, political and military might. I mean, what an event. But the cameras pulled back at the most sacred moment when the guardsmen, I love to see the guardsmen with those panels with crosses on, they all processed and they built this sort of booth and Prince Charles, King Charles got off his throne and he took off his royal robes and he went behind and he knelt down. The King of Great Britain knelt before the King of Kings. He got off his throne, he took off his robes and he knelt to receive from Jesus. The king of Nineveh got off his throne and took off his robes and knelt before the king of kings. And if you're to meet him, you've got to, you meet him on your knees. You meet him in that place of humility and need. And then finally, we see a new day dawning. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, and how they repented from their evil ways, he relented, and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. God saw the wrong that they were doing, and he called it out with the prophet's word. He saw their shame, but Nineveh repented, and God relented. Again, a theme we find throughout the book of Jonah is compassion. We'll see it next week. We saw it last week. He is the God of compassion, literally to feel, to be moved with and for. The judgment was on their sin, but when they repented of their sin, then mercy triumphed. The Assyrians were quick to respond to God's word through Jonah. And you know, I love the fact in their histories, 700 years later, only three years after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven, King Abgar of the Assyrians invited Thaddeus, the apostle, they call him Adai, invited him to come and tell them about Jesus. And Thaddeus delivered the king of sickness and shadows on his life. And he converted, and the nation converted, reputedly the first oldest Christian nation. When the word comes, we've got to receive it. It turns us around. Following the coronation of King Charles II in 1661, period of the Restoration, England sank into a real mess, real moral depravity, and God was thrown out, and God's protective grace and blessing was removed. John Dryden, in a poem called 1666, spoke about it as Annus Horribilis. You remember uh, Queen Elizabeth repeated that. In 1665, the Great Plague 
killed up to 100,000 in London. In 1666, we had the great fire of London destroying 13,000 houses. In 1666, they also had the great drought where the river Thames was reduced to a trickle. Things were bad. And what happened? King Charles II ordered that on the 10th of October, it be a day of fasting and humiliation. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And the whole nation implored God's mercy to forgive them for their wrongdoing. And that very evening, the long drought ended and it didn't stop raining for 10 days. And we pray that our new king will take the lead and will turn his kingdom to the king of kings. And while we pray and wait for that, let's be those who are first, like the people in Nineveh, to respond to the word of God. I must finish. Yesterday at the coronation, we were encouraged to declare, God save the king. Long live King Charles. May the king live forever. I know some people weren't so keen on that, but I thought it was fine. You know, these are actually words that were spoken, first of all in scripture, by Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then they were words spoken by Daniel to King Darius. They're good words. They're words that a king should be addressed with. And they are a prayer and a promise. A prayer for King Charles yesterday and a promise. They're also true for us that if we get off the throne of our lives, if we, as it were, kneel in the dust, if we humble ourselves before the King of Kings, King Jesus, if we turn from our sins and turn to him, he'll forgive us, he'll cleanse us, he will save us, and we will live forever. Amen.